Turn with me, if you would, to Amos chapter 5, where we'll read the first 15 verses. Amos 5, 1 through 15. Beginning to read with verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by the hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who run you who turn justice to wormwood and and lay and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. He made the Pleiades and Orion. <clears throat> he turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day night dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes from upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate. They abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore the prudent keeps silent at, the, at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Now this text is just chock full of really significant stuff. You may not have gleaned it on our first reading, but I pray as we go through it that you will uh, that you'll see uh, what I'm talking about. Now as I said, um, Amos, in this case, signals a fundamental change for Israel. Uh, heretofore, in, in, uh, in Amos uh, preaching and the preaching of the prophets, uh, heretofore, her law and sacrificial system could operate positively. Now, when I say that, I mean that uh, this, this has all to do with covenantal theology or covenant theology this morning. And in a covenant, you can, you can look at Deuteronomy, which is a, a covenant, uh, one part of Exodus is a covenant. Uh, you, when you, can, you can study these, these books, and you can see how the, the formula for a covenant is imposed upon them. In a covenant, you have an introduction of the covenant that speaks about the, the parties of the covenant. We talk, talk laudably about the Lord and then about Israel, his chosen. 
And uh, then there are uh, stipulations and conditions of the covenant. That is, there are demands that God has made. He, he places He places the stipulations of the covenant upon His people. The Ten Commandments happen to be a part of this, the core of the covenant of uh, of obedience, and that's why it's repeated both in Exodus and Deuteronomy, where this covenant, where these covenants are are uh, opened up for the people of Israel. And so you have the introductions, the preliminaries, you have the stipulations, then you have uh, the sanctions of the covenant. There are blessings that are stipulated for obedience, and then there are curses that are stipulated for disobedience. And uh, the way the covenant was placed before Israel, remember they, the, the people, the, the God, God loves to do these things in a graphic way. And so he brought the people up to Samaria where there were two mountains facing one another, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And he had half the people stand on Ebal, on the ridge of Ebal, half the people stand on the ridge at Gerizim. Joshua, Joshua was there orchestrating this event. And the, the covenant was read. The whole covenant was read. And the people had to, the people had to affirm. that the, They were asked, you know, will you abide? And they had to vow, much like we took public vows of membership last week uh, for... Um, for our new members, uh, the, the people were called upon to, to say amen to the things that they were that were read to them. And at that time, then, uh, it, God, it wasn't a time when Israel was not going to sin, but it was a time in which the covenant was operative in a way for them that, for either blessing or curse, depending on how how they behaved, or whether they really sought the Lord, whether they sought his forgiveness, whether they sought his justification by the sacrifices that they daily did. And, uh, but it was operative in the sense that either positive, positive things or negative things could come out of the covenant for the nation. That's the key, for the nation. In this text now, we go from the nation to uh, the individual. And from, the from this time in Amos' life, the other prophets also, Jeremiah, we see it in Jeremiah, some of the other prophets, Ezekiel. From this time on, the, there's a definite shift in the way God is dealing with his people. He's going from the covenant being operative on the nation of Israel for blessing to a time when he says, no, that, that operation is over. You've done badly. I'm revoking the covenant for you, and uh, that, that will come to pass now you had better focus on yourself and your family and uh, obtain blessing in that way. You can see that coming out in the text here. Uh, so um, there's definitely a shift. And uh, so the lesson teaches us a lot about covenant theology, the, the biblical, the covenant theology in the text of the Bible, and then how that related to the prophets. And the prophets, uh, the Hebrew term is Aved, Aved Yahweh, the servants of the Lord. The, the prophets were servants of the Lord to bring. They were like policemen who would pull you over beside the road and they'd say, this is where you've erred. This is, you, this is where you've erred, uh, made a mistake. This is where we're arresting you momentarily and challenging you to come to court. And that, that's, that was the role of the prophets. And so Amos is on the front end of this process and the other prophets too. Um, and uh, surprisingly enough, <clears throat> You will find, or you can find, where if you ask, well, who, where did this process end? 
Where, how did, when did this chapter of Israel's history come to a close? And you see, it came to a close with the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he was the last prophet. And so in Matthew, uh, I think it's 23 or 24, when he, he, he brings, he quotes Psalm 68, 69, which is a curse psalm in the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 69, and he says, this now has come to pass on the nation of Israel. And he says uh, that uh, uh, you will you'll be in this condition until you say, speaking to his people, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there's just this is very key for understanding the covenant theology of the Old Testament. Now that's the big picture. Uh, we see here as this as this text opens up that it is it has there's a lamentation for Israel. This might remind you of the the most famous lamentation of the Bible, which is done by Jeremiah. Uh, it follows the book of Lamentations follows the book of Jeremiah. And in, in these cases, where the, the lamentation is not, um, not just a thematic thing where God is calling us to lament for sin and that sort of thing. No, in this case, we're, we're supposed to realize that, that there's an official lamentation that's going up because God has changed his mind and changed his posture toward Israel. Oh, this is a problem that many evangelicals still haven't figured out today, even after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's because they don't understand covenant theology. They don't understand what's taking place in passages like this. And so the lamentation is that God has revoked their deed to the land of Israel. And uh, the, so the lamentation is both a lament. A lament means that you're you're crying out, you're sorrow for in sorrow over something. You're you're uh, expressing your sorrow over something, like the death of some person. In this case, it's not the death of a person, but it's the death of a state. And this, so this lamentation is not just an emotional thing, an emotional release of energy. It's also prophetic. You see this? What, what it's, Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. So this is a this is a prophecy by Amos. If this did not come to pass, then Amos would have been a false prophet. So it's white or black. It's a yes or no. It's a definite kind of a thing. And so this this is a lamentation. It's a it's an expression or a song of sorrow, but it's also it also has an official connection with the official covenant of Jehovah God that is in Exodus and also Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law or second covenant. And so what happened was God, God explained all this in, in Exodus to Moses, but then when the people went into the land, he reiterated it and they went through it all again a second time. And so Deuteronomy in Latin means second. And that's why, that's why Deuteronomy is a key book of the Bible. Uh, talking about the the uh, official nature of uh, the covenant for Israel. And Deuteronomy is basically the constitution of the nation state of Israel. So that they know officially what's, what their status is, what's, what's in the offing, what are the consequences of obedience, what are the consequences of going to the 
uh, going to the uh, sacrifices daily, going to the feasts yearly. What are the consequences of doing that positively or disregarding it and, and dismissing it and treating it negatively? And there were real consequences. I think I have a really good illustration of that at the end of the sermon today, uh, having to do with, um, with Zechariah uh, and uh, Elizabeth, the, the parents of John the Baptist. So uh, we start here with this lamentation. And uh, you see how the, the, uh, the Lord personifies the tragedy of this by reference to, he compares Israel to a fallen virgin. That is a virgin who has given up her virginity. A virgin who was the picture of purity in Israel. A young woman who kept herself pure, waiting for the husband that God would give her. But in this case, the virgin has spent herself and now she's lying prostrate on the ground. She's been used up. She's flaunted her virtue. And, uh, and that can't be regained. It's a, it's, a, it's a night and day kind of a thing. You can't be kind of a virgin. <laughs> you know, you're either a virgin or you're not a virgin as a young woman, as a young man. You're, you're either chaste or you're not chaste. You can't be both. And so this is the God, God portrays Israel in the, the form of a young virgin of Israel. And... Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing more lovely in many ways than the young women of our society who uh, retain a sexual purity in their lives. Um, you know, I've studied and taught aesthetics in, in my life, uh, which has to do with the doctrine of beauty or philosophy of beauty. And in many ways, we, we are the most beautiful as men and women in our youth. We, when we have that vitality, we have, uh, we, we, we might have uh, big noses, but they're not as big as they will come to be, you know, with a few, for the year. and uh, so our, our, our faces often atrophy uh, a little bit over the years. Uh, but, uh, so there's, there's nothing more lovely than the, the energy and the, the purity and the loveliness of a young person uh, in their youth. But in this case, now, Israel has fallen, verse 2, she will rise no more. Again, this is a prophecy that's done. It's over, Amos is saying. Uh, she lies forsaken on her land, and there's no one to help her. What a, what a picture of forsakenness, you see. Now, it's, it's only a few words here, but you have to look at the words. You have to develop them in your mind and see what, what it's God is saying. So <clears throat> God then... Um, uh, explains more of why this, this lamentation is appropriate. He says, for thus says the Lord God, uh, uh, the city that goes out by a thousand, that is the city that is captive, made captive or overrun, and the people are taken away, captivated. Remember, just in the last chapter, Amos talked about how they would have fish hooks through their cheeks and they would be taken away as a captive people by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And so he says here, the, the city that goes out, if there's a thousand people that, that leave Israel that are taken off the land in a captivity, there will only be a hundred left after that. If a hundred are taken, if the city is smaller, is numbered by the hundred, then there will only be ten left for the house of Israel. Now, I see this is, our, this is a, a drastic, dr dramatic 
uh, proclamation to Israel that, of, of judgment and destruction that is coming upon her. And that's why there is a lamentation here. And the lamentation, again, is prophetic. So then um, we, uh, uh, Amos moves to the second part of this prophecy. And the, he, so he, he, he transitions into a call for repentance. And um, this is where you see this transition between the, the nation and the individual and how God is addressing them. Uh, for thus says the Lord God to the house of Israel. So he's speaking to the house, to the, the nation of Israel. But he, he says, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. Now, this is, it raises up questions right away. Why is God saying these negative things about the cities? These are precious cities of Israel. These are the places where, as we've gone through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the places where God would meet Jacob or Joseph and have, they would have spiritual experiences or intimacy with the Lord in these places. But now God says, in this case, after verse 4, he says, uh, but do not seek uh, Bethel nor enter Gilgal, nor Beersheba. Uh, what, what, what is God saying here? Well, you see, these are official cities of Israel. And God is saying, it's no longer the case where uh, the, city, the cities are going to be, the official cities are going to be places of, of redemption or places where I will uh, redeem you or minister to you as a city. Now, he's saying, it is going to be uh, an individual kind of a thing. He, that, that when, you, when you see that in that exhortation, seek me and live. Now, that, may, that has implications both, both ways, but we'll see as we go on that this is, a new, this is a new trend where God is saying, he's exhorting Israel, you'd better as individuals, as families, you had better seek me because a, a destruction and a judgment is coming upon the cities, upon the nation as they're organized. But there is hope for those individuals who turn to me, who turn back to me. And in a lovely, lovely fashion, we see that with the coming of Christ, the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and his uncle, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are people that heard this prophecy, you see. And so they were, they were uh, sincere, seeking people in the midst of these nations, of this nation, which God had written off now and said that he would no longer deal with them like this as a nation. And even when we get to Romans and it talks about the, the, uh, the uh, revivals that, that would come in the future uh, with the to, uh, to quote Israel, it would not be to the nation of Israel uh, so much as the individuals, people who, who found the Lord Jesus Christ, Allah, Psalm 118. Uh, so we find it there. But anyway, we return to the text. <clears throat> so he says, seek me and li live, but don't look for me in the cities, these official cities. Uh, he says in verse 6 again, seek the Lord and live. That's the exhortation. Let he break out, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. So the, the house of Joseph here is the official, would be the official organi organized Israel. Uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, he speaks of a fire breaking out and a devouring of the official Israel. He says, with no one to quench it in Bethel, 
There's no one, there's no one, the, the, the officialdom, the elders who sat in the gates, the priests who ministered in the temple, they've been useless. They've wasted their inheritance. Um, uh, and he, in verse 7, he condemns them again with one of these phrases or condemnations. He says, you who turn justice to wormwood. Well, wormwood is a wood that's eaten by worms, and it has all kinds of holes in it. You don't want to make a table out of wormwood unless, like today, you can put a piece of glass over it, the top. Because otherwise, you know, when you spilled your ketchup and that sort of thing, it would go right in the holes, and you'd have the worst kind of table imaginable. Have all these holes in it. Well, God is saying that's what Israel has done with the things that he has given to them. Um, and he says in the last part of that verse, he says, and you've laid righteousness to, to rest in the earth. You haven't, you, instead of picking righteousness up and using it, you just lay, put it down as if it was of no account. Now in verse 8, uh, God turns uh, to the third part of our sermon, God's omnipotence. Because after telling them what's going to happen and warning them to, to work on these things as individuals, he, he, he um, uh, steps back and, and uh, speaks of himself. He speaks of his own name uh, to remind them that, that he's dead serious about these things, that these things will come to pass, and that they had better smarten up that they'd better get control of themselves as individuals and families, or they would be taken away with the rest of the people uh, and into destruction. So he says in verse 8, he made the Pleiades and Orion. Uh, the Pleiades and Orion are two smaller constellations of stars. And what's really interesting here is that both of them, both Pleiades uh, and, uh, and Orion, are the names that the pagans gave these constellations in the heavens. So there's nothing, Jehovah did not call them these things. These, these were the names that the Egyptians, the Egyptian astronomers, and then the Greek and the Roman astronomers gave to these constellations. The Pleiades is called the, uh, the seven sisters of the Pleiades. There's seven, seven major stars, or six, there's six major stars that you can see, and then there's one that there's one there that you can't see. That's called the the lost sister of Pleiades. But um, but uh, Pleiades was the uh, Pleiades was the uh, uh, the daughter. There were the, they were the daughters of um, of uh, uh, Atlas and uh, Pleon, uh, a, a god and goddess of the of uh, the ancient Greeks. And so uh, what, what I think is so interesting here is that God, this just shows that God is not superstitious. It's it's all right for him to use these pagan names. We don't have to be so um, uh, so finicky. There, there are certain theological arguments that are constructed in terms of sanctification uh, where uh, because of the past, because of sins of the past, because of sins of history, that you can't even say the words anymore. This is this is a proof that God God is not contaminated by the sin of the world. He can use the names of these star systems, and it's no nothing, no skin off his back because he knows what he's talking about. They know what they're talking about, and he's going to bring ruin upon them. So he says, "I have made Pleiades and Orion." Uh, uh, he turns that is God turns the shadow of death into morning. 
He makes the day dark as night. You know, he can make the day dark or he can make the night day. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that the fury comes upon the fortress. If you've read the book of Job, you notice how in the later chapter of Job, he's, it's full of this stuff where God is rehearsing his great omnipotent power because God wants the people of Israel to know that this is not some vendor standing on the corner harking some wares or telling you something, you know, or some weatherman that's telling it's going to rain today when it's not. No, this is the living God. What he says is going to stick. And so from this time on, you see Israel, the, the wise of Israel, those who had spiritual discernment knew that it was going to be downhill for the history of the nation state of Israel. They didn't know, they didn't know everything about it, but there were these messianic promises that also began to be show up at this time where God was saying, despite Israel's decline, I will save the Israel within Israel by my Messiah, my anointed one, even Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the smart people like Mary and Joseph, as it turns out, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, they got it. And so despite whatever, despite what the priest did, despite what the, the culture did that was wrong, these spiritual people began to uh, focus on the Lord and their families and maintain a kind of discipline within the family that was not had by the nation as a whole. Now, you see, here we are. This is tremendous application for us today because we live in a very corrupt society ourselves. Uh, will we just go with the tides of culture or will we realize that God exists, that the God who created Pleiades and Orion, that he's there, the God who created who turns night to day and day to night? He exists. How will your soul respond to the word of God? Do you recognize the Lord as the Lord? What is your theology like? You know, theology is the doctrine of God. Do you have a correct biblical theology? I would say more than half the churches in America have a very deficient theology. They think that God is like we are in the sense that he's weak and that he, his sense of justice and righteousness is uh, something that is open to diversity. You can do it or you, you, won't, you won't have to do it. Because there are two ways of looking at everything, aren't there? There's your truth and my truth and you know, there you go. No! <laughs> Amos came to preach, no, this is wrong. You'd better buck up, you'd better pay attention, because uh, this God is different. And he says in ver at the end of verse 8, the Lord is his name. The, the word Lord is the, the name Jehovah. So Jehovah is his name. Verse 9 he rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. The, the strongest thing that in, in human society at that time was the fortress. But God's fury would be vented upon the fortress and the fortress would be taken away. Amos speaks autobiographically here. He says, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate. That was Amos. And they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. That was Amos. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from them, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. 
You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink the wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions, says the Lord, and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from the justice at the gate. Even in the gate where the magistrates of Israel lived, the elders of Israel lived, that's where the last place where righteousness should have been vanquished. But even, in the, even with the elders in the gate, corruption had come. I love in verse 12 there where it mentions afflicting the just and taking bribes because we are afflicted with that today. It's a major issue in the news. You realize, you see, that, that bribery is a totally different economic system than what God prescribed in the book of Genesis for Adam and Eve and their family. So totally, well, what, do, what do we do in bribery? We do not let economics and economic trades and that sort of thing work their way out naturally. In other words, I come and I say, I've got this for sale. You say, yeah, that looks good to me, or tell me more about it. We talk about it. You think that's a good deal. I'm going to go with that. That's the free, free economic system. People making decisions for themselves before the Lord, working it out. Bribery is what we call today crony capitalism. That's where our defense companies uh, don't make a product unless they know that the government is going to buy it ahead of time. They're guaranteed. You know, we, we don't, we, we're not going to make a solar, we're not going to have a solar company unless the government passes a law that, that uh, bribes people to buy the, the solar panels or whatever. So if your economic system is done on the basis of this prompting or these crony agreements, that's one thing, but it's not a free economic system. And, uh, and, and what you see here is that long before Adam Smith in the uh, 1700s of Scotland talked about the free, free economic system, long before that, Israel was going through the same thing. You're either, uh, you're either doing things uh, because people want to do them or you're, you're doing things because there's kind of payoffs going on in the background to prompt you to make that economic uh, deal. And of course, the, the bottom, the way God gets us on this, this kind of thing is that when people freely make choices based upon what is best for them, that is the most efficient economic system possible. That, that's where choices are blessed because people are really making the choices because they see the virtues in them. Uh, today, you know, it may or may not work out. The electric car thing, we don't know. We, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's all right or all wrong to, to work with products like that. But right now, the government is trying to force people to buy electric cars. He's forcing the companies to make electric vehicles. And uh, that may not work out. It's not a foregone conclusion. But somebody in the government has made this decision, and they, they, they're taking that decision away from the companies, and they're taking that decision away from us as buyers, and it's a, it's a, a corrupt system. It's, it's a, like a bribery-like system. And, uh, and Amos, so Amos condemns it. Now, the last, the last part of this is this interim strategy that I talked about. And you see this in verses 13, 14, and 15. Mm. Amos says, Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. In other words, there are times it becomes so evil that the people have to lay low. 
It doesn't mean that somebody can't go and preach in the in the heart of the downtown or something or raise up a proclamation, maybe through a book that he publishes or she publishes. doesn't mean that that can't be the case. But there are times where that, that, that become evil and uh, woe be to the man that sticks his head above the trench, you know. He will take fire. So that's the first part. Secondly, Amos says, seek good and not evil that you may live. Again, this is to the individual Israelite. It doesn't matter that the state of Israel, in a sense, is going down the drain. Each one of us can make choices for ourselves. I remember one pastor friend of mine uh, who talked to, talked to his daughters early on as they were getting older and getting to the place where they had to make a living for themselves. And he, he told them, he gave them a, a two or three different choices for vocation that they could make that he saw as the safest for them as young women. And he said, if you go into one of these areas, you'll always have something to fall back on no matter what else you do. I'll pay for that in terms of your education. But he said, if you don't do that, then you're on your own because I just see so many dangers ahead for my daughters. That's kind of what, so that's kind of what Amos is saying here. He's saying, um, seek good and, and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. He says, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate where you can. It may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, this is the first time in Amos, and it's this, this term is used in some of the other prophets too, the remnant of Israel. But this is the first time in Amos. This is a key technical term in understanding uh, Israel and how God was dealing with them. You see, a remnant is no longer the nation as a whole. A remnant means those people who are responsive to the Lord, like Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so in the New Testament, it says in a couple places, it uses the word in the King James Version, it uses the word peradventure. So it would be here, peradventure, well, hate evil, love, love good, establish justice in the gate, peradventure that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now we know that the Lord was gracious to the remnant of Joseph. For anyone that separated themselves from this evil culture and went their own way, it probably meant a loss of uh, income. It meant that they were not as rich as their neighbors uh, who were doing all these deals and, and uh, uh, crucifying the poor by their t taking advantage of them. But for the people that were more virtuous, that had a spiritual reason for living the life that they lived, uh, God was gracious to them. And uh, when Jesus came, so many of his people turned their backs on him. But at Pentecost, there were thousands that were converted, thousands of Jews. They, they were from all different lands because of, the, because of the captivities that they had been taken on, of which Amos prophesied here. But they came back for this festival, and, uh, and um, God, even if they could not speak, uh, even if they could not speak a, a universal language between themselves, some of them no longer knew Hebrew, that uh, the God spoke to them in tongues. For those who were the remnant of Israel, they heard and they responded. Uh, the, the elect in the New Testament church are the remnant of Israel. 
And uh, we hope that that remnant will be blessed. Uh, the New Testament uses the term many also. So it uses the term remnant sometimes. It uses the term many sometimes. Many will be saved. So if we leave that up to the Lord, how many will be saved? And all that kind of thing. But we realize that we are at the tail end in the New Testament era. We're part of the Messianic kingdom instead of the old Israeli kingdom. There are tremendous differences between the two. Both have, uh, both have theological truth. Both have cultural applications. But one involves one particular nation state, whereas the others uh, involve a people uh, of mankind, which is, which is brought out at the end of Psalm 22. But that's for another, another day and another sermon. So I said, um, I said the, the, the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth really bring this out. You remember Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were the mother of John the Baptist. When, when Mary, mother of Jesus, is impregnated, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were told they were going to have a child before this. And uh, so then when, when Mary and Joseph were told this, they had this other example there of these this older, older couple to fall back on. And it really gave them a lot of sense of security. But the, the neat thing is that ties into the sermon. The neat thing is that when, uh, when uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were in the state where they had a promised, uh, a promised child, this John was coming, um, God told them to name the child John. And then he... He took away, after telling them this, he took away Zechariah's voice. Zechariah was made dumb, which is the term for not being able to speak. You're transported to the day then when John is born, and he's circumcised on the eighth day, the book of Galuca says. And uh, the elders, they come to, <coughs> they come to Elizabeth, <coughs> they say, what is the child to be named? She said, John. They said, wait a minute, Nobody, none of your ancestors are named John. He can't be named John. He's got to be named after one of your ancestors. She says, no, he's supposed to be named John. So, of course, the authorities, they're not going to lay down at the word of some woman, right? So they go to, they go to, uh, they go to the father, John, go, they go to the father, Zechariah. Zechariah can't talk. But Zechariah writes out. His name shall <laughs> his name shall be John. And as soon as he does that, as soon as he does that, his voice returns and he can speak once again. You see, this is the Lord. The Lord does these things. The Lord speaks and things come to pass. We cannot disregard the word of the Lord and, uh, and live prosperously. Zechariah and Elizabeth obeyed God's voice. They had a son. The son's name was John. And old dad got his voice back. There's a lesson to all of us to behave, to do the things that God says. God works inexorably. God may leave, you may be disobedient to him. He may leave you alone for 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years. And then your life turns over into a catastrophe from which you cannot extricate yourself. Though the city might have a thousand people in it, there will only be a hundred that will uh, survive. Though it has a hundred, only ten. God's word is true.
God's word will not return unto him void. And so Amos preached on this day. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that this, these lessons might be ours. We pray that we would take your word seriously. We pray that we would take thy gospel word seriously. There's no other way that we can be saved under heaven and earth but to trust in and put our trust in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins and to deliver us unto the righteousness that we need. And so let us take up this gospel. Let us not disregard it. Let us not take it lightly. Let us hear thy word and obey. And then when it comes to all the other ways that we treat each other, that you talk about in your word, we pray that we would take that seriously too. We pray that we would not think that we can cheat each other, defraud each other, lie to each other, uh, whatever, and get away with it. We will pay the price. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open up our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then that you would show us the way to walk therein. In his name we pray. Amen.